Well, everybody at least seemingly loves love. I mean, you hear it everywhere in our culture. Love is the most important thing you will hear. Love wins. Love is the most powerful force in the universe, I've seen on a bumper sticker. Uh, All you need is love, uh, someone sang at one point long ago, and on and on. Uh, But, of course, the question is, what is love? I mean, what do we as a culture mean by it when we speak about love? It is difficult to define, in part because we have one word uh, that covers way too many things uh, in our language. I mean, I love my wife, and I love my dog, and I love breakfast burritos, Uh, and I love to be right. Um, Clearly, or at least I hope it's clear, that that word love doesn't mean the same thing in each one of those contexts. You know, comparing one's love for their wife with a breakfast burrito could be dangerous uh, in the wrong context. But what makes it even more complicated is that when we speak of love, most often in our culture, we're referring to romantic love or erotic love, uh, a love that is defined for us, even by our own Webster's Dictionary, as an intense feeling of deep emotion. You know, in this sort of love, we fall into it, and then we fall out of it, and it's no wonder that you fall out of this sort of love, because it's hard to keep, you know, intense feelings of deep emotion about anything at all times and in all places, much less deep affection and stirred emotions for another flawed human being. And then we come to church, and we hear praise of love, uh, the same praise of love that we hear outside. We sing songs about love. Uh, and if we're not careful, we infuse into that word all the same meaning that we find outside of the doors of the church. And we know that God loves you. We know that you are called to love your neighbor. We know that the mark of the Christian, what will set us apart, is their love. And that all sounds good, but what does it mean? I mean, what is it that we're being called to in this word? Well, I want us to see this morning under three uh, headings, what the scripture teaches, at least concerning this attribute of the fruit of the Spirit. And I want us to see first this morning God's love. As we look at the first fruit of the Spirit, or at least the first one listed, we'll be considering the fruit of love. But of course, in order to understand it correctly, we must first understand what God's love is, what it means for Him. As you hopefully will recall from last Lord's Day, if you were here, The fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is the Spirit's fruit. He is the source as well as the content of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit now produces in us, if you will, sun fruit, uh, the fruit of Jesus Christ himself in each of our lives, or as what Paul refers to it elsewhere, Christ formed in you. And so when he talks about love in Galatians chapter 5, you can't understand what love means until you understand what it means for God himself to love, since that is the fruit that is being born in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about God's love, we need to see how it differs from a lot of the ways that we define love elsewhere in other contexts. Uh, The Greeks, for instance, as many of you know, had four main words they used in describing love. I mean, it wasn't the only words, but four main words. Maybe you've read Lewis's Four Loves. He really plays on this theme. Uh, You know, they have one word that speaks of romantic love, uh, one word for brotherly love, another for sort of familial, empathetic love. And then they have this fourth term that Paul uses here, this term that we know of as agape. 
And oftentimes you'll hear agape defined as unconditional love, but the fact is it gets that definition because of the way the Bible used it, not the way that the Greeks used it prior to the penning of Scripture. In fact, agape was the least used of these four words in classical Greek. You don't find it very often in the literature. Uh, you see much more usage of, of these other uh, three uh, particular words as far as speaking uh, of love, whether it be eros or phileo or so forth. Um, and some have argued, and I think rightly so, that it's precisely because agape isn't used that much outside of the New Testament that Paul and the New Testament authors decide to use it to define God's love. Because it's uncommon, and it's not in the, you know, if you will, in the normal vernacular, in one sense, it doesn't come with all the baggage that a word that has common usage comes with. Uh, his love is so different than our normal way of loving uh, that they, uh, Paul, it seems, uses it in hopes that he can infuse it with a meaning very particular to God himself, because God's love doesn't mirror any other sort of love in the universe. It is radically different from what we know of as romantic love or what we know of as brotherly love. To merely use the common word for love would cause difficulties. I mean, think about the difficulties that it's caused in our own culture, especially our Christian culture. Uh, look at some of the worship songs that we sing, uh, you know, popularly, and how the word love in those songs is used. It's often used in the very kind of romantic sense, which the Bible, again, doesn't uh, uh, use very often in that sense concerning God. God does love us like a husband love his, loves his wife, but his love is not identical to the romantic love that you have for your wife. God does love us like a parent loves a child, but you can't speak of his love as merely parental love. It goes beyond or it breaks the barriers of that. And yet, and again, the Greek culture, this just wasn't the norm. Uh, consider Plato. For him, the highest form of love is to love that which is most beautiful, that which is of the highest regard. So you love that which is most lovely. That's how you grow in virtue. Uh, and if you were to take that view of love and apply it to Scripture, hopefully you'll see that that would be bad news for you. If God only loves the most lovely, uh, at least a few of you would be kicked out of the camp. No. Um, so what is God's love? I think it's interesting to think about this. Your Bible, while it may have one now, did not originally come with a glossary of terms at the back. Uh, you can't just flip to the back pages of Scripture and look up what agape means uh, in the original copies of Scripture and be like, oh, that's what it means in this particular context. How do you figure out what words mean, uh, scripturally speaking, when you, don't, you see these words used often? We learn what God's love is not by Him writing a definition for us, but by watching what He does, by seeing how He acts, by witnessing His works for us, from those things, then we get to, uh, you know, uh, if you will, think backwards from that and discover what he means by the word love. So what do we see when we look at God's attribute of love in Scripture? And the first thing we see is that God's love, at least for humanity, is not based on merit. Uh, unlike Plato, he doesn't find something lovely in us and then decide to love it. Uh, if we're going to understand the love of God at all, you must understand that it does not love that which is most praiseworthy or most noble. His love is first and foremost based 
not on the beauty of the object, but it's merely based on his own desire. He loves you simply because he wants to. I mean, from the beginning, God has shown his love to fallen humanity. This isn't something new to his character. By pursuing and loving those, you'll notice, who were not lovely at all. We learn right away that God begins to redeem man, and Noah finds favor in God's sight. But you can try as you might, you won't find any reasons why Noah found favor in God's sight. God just placed his favor on him. Abraham, we're told, the one thing we know about him is that, you know, he worshipped idols and he was from a pagan town and God chose him to make promises to and to take him as his own people. Even as we read this morning in Deuteronomy 7, if Israel is looking for a reason why God said, hey, you're my special people, you are treasured by me more than any other people group on the earth. And he says, but before you get carried away, it wasn't because you were so great. Like, you weren't the most numerous nation, so I figured, well, I'll just get the biggest one, and then we'll, you know, dominate the rest of the world. He says, because, in fact, you were very, very small. And then he says, I, I will tell you the reason. And what's the reason he gives? He says, I loved you because I set my love on you. It, it sounds like a tautology. He says, it wasn't because you were great, rather it was because the Lord loved you. So the reason God loved Israel and made them special above all the rest was because he found them special for his own reasons. He loved them. The explanation of God's love is foundational to the rest of Scripture and must be understood if you're going to understand it all, God's love for you, but also if you're going to understand it all, what God means when he calls you to love others. I mean, imagine if God was trying to write Browning's Sonnet 43. You know, how, how do I love thee? Uh, he might write it this way. Why do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That would be the end of it. Um, I love thee because I decided to love thee. I mean, that would be the end of the poem. Not only for Israel, but very plainly in the New Testament, also for us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundations of the world, God chose us. And he says the reason he chose us was based on his own love for us, even though we were already viewed uh, in, the, in, in the background of sin. It wasn't because he found anything worthwhile in you or something that gave you, you know, a, a, an advantage over the rest. It doesn't because he saw your, your faith that would eventually just blossom in the future. He set his love on you because he decided that you were beloved to him. So it is love based on nothing in the beloved. Nothing worthy or noble or beautiful that if lost would just destroy the relationship altogether. Which may not sound like good news at first, but I mean, consider that. There's nothing in you that's the reason he loved you, which means there's nothing you can lose that he'll say that, ah, well, that was the whole reason I liked you to begin with. And now that you're, you know, now that you're not athletic... I'm mean, not, not talking about you, Dave. Sorry about the trip and fall this week. <laughs> it's not because, you know, uh, you know beauty, beauty fades and God's like, well, you know, uh, sorry, you were beautiful at one point, but no longer. His love is not conditioned on anything in us and therefore is not conditional. But it's not just that it's not based on merit. Scripturally speaking, it's very clear that it's in the face of demerit. He loves the unlovely. And in fact, he only loves the unlovely. 
He only saves sinners. He only puts his special redeeming love on those who are completely ill-deserving. It's not that we didn't just offer much. He chose us despite what we offered. And it's one thing to say, I didn't choose you because you were the most beautiful. I mean, we could probably live with that. It's another to say, even though you were, you know, you were downright homely, pretty hard to look at. You know, the dog wouldn't even play with you unless I put bacon-scented cologne on you. Uh, but I chose you anyway, in spite of all of that. Which, morally speaking, is exactly what the Bible says of us. There wasn't much to look at. In fact, it was repulsive concerning our character and God's character. We're not at all attracted to one another, and yet God loved us anyway. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, I've said this before, in the Greek, you know, uh, he's using the negation, the, the awe article. You know, there's godly and there's things that are not God. And God says, you are everything that was opposed to me. And yet I loved you anyway. And while that may sound insulting, think of how freeing that is. That on your worst day, you were still loved. And whatever bad days you have in the future, that love will remain because it's not conditioned on your character. As Victor Hugo writes, the one who wrote Les Mis, the greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves, or rather, loved in spite of ourselves. So it's not only that it's not based on merit, and not only that it's in the face of demerit, and in that way, highly irrational to us. It's a love that's willing to act for our good, even to his own loss. He loves you because he wanted to. He loves you despite that you're undeserving or worse. But he acts out of that love to ensure your good knowing that you can't pay him back ever, and that you weren't even looking for that good when he gave it. As Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This one who gave himself for our sins, he says, to deliver us from this present evil age. Notice God's love leads him to give. To give his only begotten son for sinners. His love isn't self-protective. It's not self-willed. But it's self-sacrificing. I mean, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. I mean, this God who is the source of all beauty, who is beauty itself, who is the source of all blessing, who is blessedness itself becomes ugly and cursed in order to pursue and win and display his love for those who weren't even looking for it. Paul says, if I could just somehow convince you, just give you a small peek into the height or depth or breadth or width of God's love for you, if you only knew what it meant that God loved and gave for you. Not only is he willing to act on our behalf, he's willing to look at us. 
through a lens distorted in our favor. His grace, his love imputes, it gives and it grants what isn't there. He calls things lovely that aren't lovely. And as we'll see in a moment, he eventually makes them lovely. But he speaks words over you that you can't even speak over yourself and mean them most of the time. And he means every word of it. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, as if I died, that's how God sees me. I died to all of that sin. He says, no longer I live, but Christ in me. The life I now live is Christ's life. The way that God sees me is now the way that he sees his own son. Or as he says of us, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You are called, even now, what you are not by nature, and what you are not even presently in practice. You are called holy and beloved. You are called things that you have yet to live up to. And he speaks those words of imputation over you without wincing or begrudgingly. He lavishes you with that kind of praise. As Richard Hooker, the famous English theologian, said, although in ourselves we be altogether sinful and unrighteous, yet even the man which in himself is impious, full of iniquity, full of sin, him God beholds with a gracious eye, putting away his sin by not imputing it, taking quite away the punishment that's due by pardoning it, and accepting him in Jesus Christ as perfectly righteous as if he had fulfilled all that was commanded him in the law. And because he looks at us with that gracious eye, because he calls us what we're not, it oddly works. We become, or will become, (laughs) everything he speaks over us. While his grace is given to us freely with no expectation of return, it always gets a return to those who God applies it to. You will be raised as adopted sons. You will look like your Savior. You will be conformed to the very image of the risen Christ. You will be all that God sees you as already. As Capon rightly says, Jesus is in bad people. (laughs) He hasn't turned his back on them. Don't you see, Jesus is all that counts. After all, he's the word of God who made them. He's the incarnate word who reconciles them. And no matter what you or I may do or not do in our lives, the gospel truth is that when we're dead, he is going to raise us. And when he raises us, he's going to raise us repaired, not left in the mess of our sins. And so that is, in our first point, the love of God. So I want us to see, secondly, the Spirit's fruit. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, which means, dear Christian, that the love of God himself is at work in you, uh, or you wouldn't be a Christian, and you're being called to live out of that self-same power that now is in you by the Spirit. As Paul has told us earlier in this chapter, therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children, what a shock that all those words go together. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. Notice what he says. Copy God, you beloved ones. And the first thing he says I want you to copy, walk in love. Since you're beloved, you go out and live in that same manner. 
And then he even defines the love he's talking about. The love of Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. A love that looks like the cross. A love that looks like nothing that the world knows or advertises or cares about. God is calling us, those who have been loved freely and unconditionally, despite all good sense uh, and circumspection (laughs) and explanation, he's calling us to join the party that he's already started. He's saying, go ahead and be as frivolous, if you will, with your love as I have been. Waste it on the wrong people. Give it to those who don't deserve it in the same manner that I have. Now, that sounds awesome, um, but it is not natural for us in case you haven't noticed. Um, You'll notice by the end of the morning. Um, Our love most often, uh, at least the way we think about it, is always based on reciprocity of some sort, some sort of give and take, some sort of uh, willingness, yes, to give as long as there's some reward or something in it for me. You know, we choose our friends and our spouses because we find something attractive or interesting or worthwhile or beneficial in them. I mean, not many of you married someone that off the bat you couldn't stand. No. (laughs) We, of course, want to be good friends, but it's a mutual friendship. I mean, I'll give you this as long as you are willing to also live like this toward me. You know, I'll love you until or I'll love you if... Those are the sorts of ways that we often approach things. And, of course, it has limits and boundaries and termination points. I mean, if he's taking too much of my energy, if she's making me unhappy, if I'm not getting what I wanted from this relationship originally, it's just not like it used to be, then, of course, we distance ourselves or terminate it altogether. And so our human love is always, at one level, a, a love that's keeping score to see if we're getting taken advantage of, if we're getting a fair shake, Uh, It can hardly forgive, and it cannot forget. And often the world says, well, you shouldn't love those sorts of people. You need to watch out for you, you know. How can you possibly love anyone if you're not fully, you know, loving yourself and taking care of yourself? And if that person's draining you in any sort of way, then cut them off because, you know, your self-care is of the utmost important. I mean, do they spark joy? (laughs) If not. Throw them away. Um, Your own happiness is paramount. And the lens by which you judge who is worthy of your affection is based on what is in you. What are they doing to you? How are they affecting you? And God comes knocking and says, don't forget. I loved you, though there was no benefit in it for me. Though you grieved me. Though it would cost me more than you could possibly imagine. And I'm calling you now to join in that same sort of love. I mean, it sounds romantic until you hear Jesus say, love your enemies. Even that, we're like, yeah, we should do that. That sounds good. And then he says, what I mean by that is real love. Not have like, you know, a willingness to have okay emotions towards your enemies. But do good to those who spitefully use you. He's like, no, just, you know, act in real life, you know, where the rubber meets the road by doing good things to those who only do bad things to you. And then we just say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, who could live like that? And Father Zosima, at the, the end of Brothers Karmazov, says it rightly. He says, love in action 
So, you know, the way you think about love, he says, love in action is a harsh and a dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. You know, having to really love somebody, that is a dirty business. Very hard to make a romantic comedy based on it. But while dreadful, of course, to think about giving that sort of love, we're all dying for it. I mean, don't you want to be loved like that? By somebody, by anybody. I mean, love you despite all of your faults, your moods, your past, the fact that you did it again. I mean, to know you, the real you, and to say, it's okay, I'll be there in the morning when you wake. Allison Weiss wrote in a song, everybody leaves, and everybody needs space and time and room to breathe. And all I ever wanted was a reason to believe. Is that so much to ask? Because right goes wrong, and then life goes on, and I'm still singing that same old song. Someone tell me something's going to last. I want a one-way love. So notice what you say. So every relationship I've ever had, it ends with either I need space, I need time, I need distance. Everything always deteriorates. And she says, I just want one thing, someone to love me even though I'm unlovable. Frankie Schaefer, who is no safe guide in a lot of ways, does say this. The reason I love my wife, Janine, the reason she is so beautiful to me, is that I have been there when I have been the worst thing in her life. And she still loved me. You see, we're being called into the very life of God the very love of God, to do the very work of God for people who are dying to be loved. To love people based on nothing in them, yea, even to love your enemies. I mean, Lewis in his book talks about how he prays for his enemies nightly, and then he lists his current list of enemies. He says, I'm praying currently for Hitler and Stalin. You know, and he goes through all this thing and goes, and that has caused me no small amount of thinking before God. He's calling us to suffer in service for the sake of those who don't deserve it. To impute to them with a gracious eye a goodness they don't possess. And to give them a goodness they don't deserve. To look at them as if. As if they were nice to you. As if they did the right thing. As if they were going to change this time. I've used this quote before, but it's pretty precious to me. In Marilyn Robinson's book, Home, the kind of wayward, rebellious prodigal, the older sister says to him, concerning their father, he says, our father, he worries about everything, but it'll be fine. You've always known how to please him. She says this to the prodigal son, to which he replies, no, I could always just count on him to be pleased with me. Notice, everyone else has written this young man off. He says, but I always knew that my father was pleased with me, even in the worst parts of my rebellion. Not having anything to do with me knowing how to please him. You know, so knowing that this is God's way of love really is powerful enough to change the world, as corny as that sounds. It is what will ultimately change the world. The love of God for sinners will bring about a new creation. And he's calling us into that same world-changing pattern. And 
it is scary. <laughs> Surely it's beautiful when it's seen. We love to see it in movies. We love to read about it in stories. It's a whole nother matter when you have to put your own boots on and do it. But it's even more beautiful when experienced by others. Maybe some of you have seen the documentary When a Child Dies. Uh, if you want to be really depressed, go ahead and watch it. Uh, about well, exactly what it talks about, parents who have lost children in their youth. And the one that they really focus on is a man who was asked by his wife one morning to take their four-year-old daughter and drop her off at daycare before he went to work. To which he said yes, but it wasn't their normal routine, and so he packed the daughter up and packed up his work stuff and went to work and went straight in the door, forgetting that it was his agreement that he was taking the daughter to daycare where she stayed in the car for the rest of the day and was found before the workday ended dead because of the heat in the car. He talks about the shame and the guilt and how it was just too much to bear. That even though it was an accident, there was no way he could be talked out of the what should have been done. He said he had a friend that told him, hey man, they're talking about you on the local radio station. There was kind of a shock jock on the radio. He says, don't listen, it's horrible. And he says, you know, but I just couldn't resist. I had to turn it on. He says, I did once. I lasted about three minutes. It was really ugly stuff, but Here's the hardest part. They were not saying anything that I hadn't already said to myself and about myself. And as he's trying to go through this process of grieving, a family who had lost a child that was known to him visited him. And they had lost a child to drowning, also an accidental death. And the mother spoke to him. She said, an accidental death is the worst because people look at you differently. When I tell them my child drowned, they turn away. They immediately, I see it in them, they think, why weren't you there? To which her husband says to this man who is grieving, it's really important for you to know this, you will see your child again. My wife told me that. She said, you will see your child again, to which he responded. And I said, when she sees us, she's going to hate us. This is important for you to know that when your child sees you again, your child's going to accept you and love you. He says, I needed to know that in order to just go on living. And this same man who left his four-year-old daughter in the car says he was standing before the judge that was going to give, giving him his final sentence. Sentenced to where he is now a felon, uh, guilty uh, of manslaughter, uh, 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 accidental hom homicide. He says, this judge could have given a verdict with no commentary. He doesn't owe me anything. He said, but he spoke to me for 20 minutes. I always valued that. He says, he took the time to turn his chair and to talk to me. And he said to me, I'm not going to give you any jail time. Because what will that deter you from? He says, but I am going to give you two hours of community service. If for no other reason... It will just force you to get out of bed and to be in society. He says, two things which you need to do. And this man said this. He said, the very fact that he just said I should still be in society, that I wasn't worthless. He says, that was so big, it was a turning point. He said, it changed my life. You see, love without judgment for the unworthy speaking worth over people who are undeserving, 
is a life-changing reality. It's already changed you and that it's happened to you in the gospel. And God says that you are now given permission to live in this sort of way towards other. Everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. To, known, to be known and to be loved. Well, as we conclude this morning, I want us to see the Spirit's fruit in our failure. Once again, I do think it's a beautiful subject. So how are you doing with it? I mean, how many grudges are you holding? How much bitterness have you allowed? How many people are you shunning or tolerating or judging or avoiding? How much forgiveness are you withholding? How many days are you counting until they're finally gone? How many times do you speak ill when they're not around or think ill when they are or wish ill? (laughs) How much joy does it bring you when you hear about their struggles? How hard are you working to make sure you're winning? Or maybe worse than all of those, how much could you just care less? How indifferent have you grown to just their very existence? Because Christians, we are called to love, to walk in love as Christ walked for us. The world will know we are Christians by it. So how are we doing at it? Well, I asked that question to bring two points home, hopefully both in hope. First, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, this is not a new law. This isn't God saying, love or else. This is God promising you that what he has secured for you by giving you his Spirit will come to pass. That this is what God is working in you by his divine promise, even if you can't see it. You shall love. Gerhard Ferdy writes it this way, when we come to realize that if we're going to be saved, it shall be absolutely by grace alone. It's only when we realize that, then shall we be sanctified. God will have his way with us at last. (laughs) You see, that is the promise of the gospel. Not that if you get this right, you get to stay in the gospel. But that Christ is going to make this happen in you. You will love. Heaven will be a place of complete and utter self-giving love. And it has been promised to you, and you are called to live out of that love even now. But what's going to ignite it is not me beating you over the head of how poorly you're doing at it. And I could. (laughs) I could do it to myself as well. But to try to beat into your head how loved you already are by God, despite that you're not doing very well at mimicking him in the way that you love others. Purity continues, the law says, thou shalt love, and it is right, it is holy, true, and good, yet it can't bring about what it demands. It might impel towards the works of the law, the motions of love, but in the end they will become irksome and will always and often lead to hate. But if we go up to someone on the street and grab them by the lapel and say, look here, you're supposed to love me, the person may drudgingly admit that you are right, but it won't work. The result will likely be the opposite from what the law demands. Law is right, but it simply cannot realize what it points to. So it works wrath instead. It can curse, but it can't bless. In commanding love, the law can only point helplessly to what it cannot produce. So what will work if me telling you to love won't work? 
Well, the scripture teaches us very plain that the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who knows that they are loved, the one who knows that they don't deserve it, the one who knows how gross their sins are, especially their sin of being a you know, miser when it comes to loving their neighbor, and still to know that God views them as absolutely holy, and not just at a distance, but says, I love you before you change. That person who knows they're loved much will also love in like kind. And I'm here to tell you, as unloving and unkinding and self, uh, unkind and self-serving as you've been, God does still love you. And I'm here to herald to you that you're accepted already. God's delighted with you already. He rejoices over you already. Everything that you did last night or did last week or are still regretting from all those years ago, God has forgiven and he's thrown them into the deepest seas. And so I end with this. A song beautifully expressed by Joy Williams. I thought you wouldn't love me if I didn't do everything right. So I lied to tell the truth and I hid myself most from you. Good was never perfect and perfect never could be good enough for me. But I tried and I failed. And you loved me. I had all the answers. That was easier than facing the dark. And I sold my story until the story started falling apart. Every secret spoken, all out there in the open. And I pretended not to see. And I tried and I failed. And you loved me. And the gospel tells you this morning that you have tried. And yes, you failed. But God loves you. Now go and do likewise. Let's pray.